First Peter chapter 1, we're continuing our verse-by-verse exposition through this marvelous letter in God's Word. Give you a second to get there. <clears throat> All right, First Peter chapter 1. And uh, the text for this morning is going to be 3 through 5, or this evening is going to be 3 through 5. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you in the the name and righteousness of your imperishable, undefiled, indestructible, and invincible Son. We thank you that it is true that he is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen today. And he is alive at your right hand. And he is our hope. Pray that he would exalt himself through the preaching of your word. Pray that your heart, your people's hearts would grow in affection for him. Pray that Jesus would be magnified through the power of your spirit. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, this begins the main body of the letter of First Peter. And he begins the main body of this letter by honing in on one key pervasive reality in the Christian life. That reality is hope. The believers that he was writing to knew what it was to be discouraged. Remember we talked about this last time. How does he describe the believers that he's writing to in verses 1 and 2? Let's just review. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. So the relationship to God is elect. The relationship to the world, exile, loss, suffering, without possessions, without a home, that's the relationship to the world. They know what it is to suffer. They're elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. So that's their salvific reality. They belong to God the Father from the fountain of his mercy from all eternity. In the sanctification of the Spirit, he gave his Spirit to them in time and he carved out a people for himself. And this was a local manifestation of that. And then for the glory of Jesus Christ, for obedience to him. So that's, their, that's the salvific reality, the salvific relationship of their life. But the Christian life is lived in these two different planes. The other relationship is one of irreconcilable exile from the world. These believers knew that in their own experience. Maybe they even bore the marks of it in their own bodies. They knew what it was to be discouraged. They're exiles with no inheritance in this world. 
growing more and more hated by the world, opposed by their own people. And not only that, but at this time in church history, the people with the most power in all of created existence, all of the known world, the people with the most power were now beginning to actively seek the destruction of God's people, the church. The believers in Jesus had caused enough of a ruckus and had gained enough traction where it's said of the ministry of Paul, the whole world is going after them. The gospel is being preached in enough power that it's taken, the authorities have taken notice of it. And now they have a target on their backs. They're beginning to, opposition is beginning to ramp up. And what they once saw as their success this flourishing of the gospel, this preaching of the risen, exalted Christ to the nations. The message they were having so much success in is now bringing all sorts of opposition. And any reasonable person in this situation will be saying, it's time to pack it in and go home. Any reasonable person outside of Christ in this situation will be, let's just give up. There's no way this is worth it. It's not worth the cost. If this is what the gates of hell, not prevailing against the church, look like, looks like, count me out. I'm not saying we can, we can identify with everything that they were going through, but I think that we get maybe just at least a taste of it in our lives. We might get a small taste of their discouragement. We might get a small taste of their doubts. We might get a small taste of their worries. We, just like they did, see the nations raging against God and his Christ. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kingdoms of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That is an for all time until Christ returns reality. The nations rage against God. And the church today experiences that like this church did, even if we're not in as harsh of conditions. But it's not even even just that. It's just the, the everyday trials of life, too. We're tempted to look around us at cancer and disease and car trouble and house trouble and family trouble and relationship strife. We're tempted to look around uh, and and ask ourselves, where is the promise of his coming? The promise that all things will be made new by Jesus, because that's the gospel that we believed. The gospel of the Messiah who died and rose again to make all things new. We experienced that in the new creation, even within our souls as we believe the gospel. But I look around and I don't see it. That is just a taste of what these believers may have been feeling. What this church might have been suffering and striving with. But what Peter is doing as he opens up the body of this letter is he's giving us a way to conquer discouragement. He's giving us a way to conquer worry and doubt and, yes, unbelief. All of these are sins that arise from unbelief. Peter gives us a gospel of hope that conquers all of those things. The gospel of hope goes to war against these pet sins that we let live in our lives for too comfortably. So what I want us to see from this text 
In these verses, Peter gives us five foundations for a hope that conquers despair. Five foundations for living in a world that is against you, in a world that has fallen, in a world in which we will suffer. Five foundations for a hope that conquers unbelief and despair in that kind of a world. And the first one is seen in verse 3. Look at verse 3 with me. Let's read it again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Hone in on those words, born again with me. Born again to a living hope. Peter is saying that the beginning of the Christian life is a supernatural work of God that is needed even to possess the hope that the gospel offers. There's a supernatural work of God in recreation that only God can do that is needed even to look at what the gospel offers and to hope in that, even to desire what the gospel offers. And this should stagger us with our inherent deadness and sin. The fact that God has to do this in order to bring us from darkness to light, to actually give us all of these good things that are promised in the gospel, this should stagger us with our deadness and sin. Why? Let's put it like this. The world is full of people who hope for things, who desire for things, and who long for things that only the gospel of Jesus Christ actually has the power to provide. It's, you know, sometimes we get this, this feeling as, Christian, as Christians that it's wrong to desire satisfaction. Or it's, it's wrong to desire love. Or it's wrong to desire comfort or rest or joy or happiness. A lot of times in the Christian life we get so focused on take up your cross and follow Jesus. Yes, that is true. But we, we become so focused on that that we start to think it's wrong to want happiness or peace or joy or any of those other things. No, God created you to want all of those. And actually, the gospel offers all of those things. It offers them in God through Jesus Christ. Let's, let's look at some passages here that, that offer this. Think about some of the most soul-satisfying, desire-fulfilling ways that the promises of the gospel are described in Scripture. This is one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible, actually. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah chapter 55. What's amazing about this chapter is that this is right on the heels of the suffering servant prophecy. The servant who would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our sins. And by his suffering, he would justify the many. And then what is said about the new covenant that is wrought in the blood of the servant? How is it described in Isaiah chapter 55? It's described in terms of delight and satisfaction and rest and an abundance of good things that God offers through the suffering of that servant. Read with me at Isaiah 55, uh, starting in verse 1. It's 1 through 3. Come, everyone who thirsts, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Buy wine and milk without money and without price. He's offering you good things. 
God is offering you satisfaction in the gospel. Satisfaction that comes from Him and from Him alone. And then verse 2, it's actually a rebuke for looking for any of those things outside of the living God. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not, what? Satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. He's offering you what is good. He's offering you delight. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I'll make you with you a cov- an everlasting covenant, my steadfast and sure love for David. That sounds like a gospel that is offering you all of the things that lost sinners are seeking outside of God. This is a gospel that offers water for the thirsty, bread for the hungry, free delight and satisfaction. But you know what the problem is and you know what the connection is between this and 1 Peter? We need to be born again because as we're lost in our sins, we will see the rivers of the water of life flowing right in front of us and we will spit in them rather than drink. We will see everything that our lost and damned soul is searching for outside of God offered in Jesus Christ freely, without money, without price. And we'd rather be parched. That is deadness in sin. That is what total depravity looks like. This isn't the only place in Scripture, though, that talks about, that frames the gospel in those terms. John chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. What does Jesus offer the woman at the well? He offers her living water that's going to well up to eternal life. Water that will, it will satisfy your thirst to the extent that you will never thirst again. John chapter 6, verse 27, what kind of food does Jesus offer his, those who are following him? He says, work for the food that endures to eternal life. And what's the food? It's his body given for you. It's the gospel. It's his body given for you. It's his blood shed for you. He's saying, devour me and never be hungry and never be thirsty again. And you'll have eternal life. John chapter 7, verse 37. Whoever thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Matthew chapter 11, 23. Comes at it from a little bit different of an angle, but it's the same idea. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Does your soul seek rest? Do you think that unbelievers aren't seeking rest? They absolutely are. They just hate the God who offers it. The free offer of the gospel is free satisfaction, eternal rest, free, endless delight at the right hand of God, rivers of pleasure, immeasurable glory. Everything that unbelievers are searching for outside of God. But those who are dead in sin will approach that gospel and walk away and say, no, thank you. I'd rather choose hell is what they're saying. That is idolatry. That's enslavement and deadness to sin. And Peter says, you need more than just the offer of the gospel. You need a resurrection to even desire what the gospel offers. You need a resurrection to 
grant you a heart that is in accordance with that living hope first. And that's what Peter's talking about here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who, who has done what? He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is God's action in salvation. That's what being born again to a living hope means. But this isn't something that we've affected. Because there was nothing in my will, before I came to Christ, there was nothing in my will that desired this hope. There was nothing in my power that could change my heart from being dead in trespasses and sins and go from that state to a state where I desire the eternal glory that's offered in Jesus Christ. So it has to be God's action. Yes, God works through the free offer of the gospel, but the effectual call is the secret work of the Spirit of God by which he uses that gospel message to open hearts to the hope that's offered in it. That's that's what's happened to every single person who is here genuinely worshiping the Lord today. You are a walking resurrection. A walking spiritual resurrection. And by the way, one day your body will be raised too in the likeness of it. This is God's action. So that brings us to the second. The first foundation was our awakening to hope. The second foundation is the source of our hope. Turn with me back to, if you're not already there, turn with me back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. In verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father, excuse me, of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter doesn't congratulate them on turning from darkness to light. You ever notice that that's not how the gospel is framed? Yes, the apostles express thanksgiving for the conversion of their audiences. Yes, they express worship to God for the conversion of their audiences, but they never frame their arguments in their letters with, good job, you were wiser than the rest of them. That's never how, the, how uh, the thanksgiving of the apostles is framed in their letters. They don't say congratulations for being more wise than all the other sinners. They don't say that you, you rightly saw that the gospel was the only true hope. Well done. It's not what they say. Instead, what is this? This verse is doxology. This verse is an eruption at the very beginning of this letter in worship to the Father. Look, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is that? It is worship. And even though there's not exclamation points in the original language, I think your English translations are right to have an exclamation point there. Because this is worship on Peter's part. He's saying, he's saying, yes, I'm writing to a people that is downtrodden. Yes, I'm writing to a people that is outcast in terms of the world. But I'm writing to a people that God has supernaturally caused to be born again. And the roots of that are in his eternal mercy in Christ. Look at, let's, just for a second, let's compare verses 2 and 3. There's a comparison here that I think needs to be brought out. And the comparison is found in the prepositional phrases in both 
verses 3 through 5 and in verses 1 and 2. Because verses 3 through 5 and verses 1 and 2 in this passage mirror each other. They, they mirror each other in the movement of the verses and in specifically how the apostle uses prepositions to describe the actions of God. Look at, look at verses uh, 1 and 2 with me and then we're going to compare that with verses 3 through 5. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Then he says what? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. According to, keep that in your mind, in or by or through the sanctification of the Spirit. Keep that in your mind too. For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And then he uses the exact same framework in verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what does he say? According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through, by, or in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead unto an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Peter is repeating his style of argumentation to emphasize something here. And what he's emphasizing in the first portion of verse 3 is that our salvation has its roots in the eternal mercy of God. He is the efficient cause from which every blessing of the gospel flows to his people. It's the Father eternally loving the Son and eternally loving those whom he gave to his Son. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. So not only do you have that eternal mercy, you have his application of that mercy in time by accomplishing a work as sovereign and particular as the resurrection itself. Look at, look at, this, look at this comparison here. Born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You're being born again. You're being raised to new life in Christ, receiving a new heart that loved God, trusted Christ, instead of the old one that hated him, is a work that is as sovereign and particular as the resurrection of Jesus was. It is a singular work of God's power, and that's why none of us can take credit for it. And it's rooted in the eternal plan of God for the ages. He loved you from all eternity. Do you realize that? Does that actually sink into your heart today? Yes, you were lost before you came to know Christ, but he loved you from all eternity. And he loved you in his son and for his sake. And this should be absolutely humbling to us. When I got saved, my life was a pretty radical change from darkness to light. I was in sort of the mid-teen years, so enough of my rebellion was starting to express itself to where it was noticeable. But then I got saved and everything just changed like that. I, I perceived the mercy of God in Jesus. And ultimately, I, it, it, it was exactly how the text describes it here. It was new life from the dead. But I would be so confused and sort of mystified when different adults, not my parents, but different adults would be like, I'm so proud of you for making a change. I'm so proud of you for, you know, walking down a new path or something like that. 
This was absolutely, positively bewildering to me. And I couldn't, I didn't know how to put words on it at the time, but now I do. It was bewildering to me because I didn't raise myself from the dead. I'm a recipient of mercy. That's the heart attitude of the Christian. I am a recipient of mercy. God, who is the everlasting, infinite fountain of life, took me dead in my trespasses and sins and caused me to be born again. This is the inescapable entrance into the Christian life for every person who is truly a believer. Every single person who is truly a believer has experienced a resurrection. And it was sovereign, and it was particular, and it was in accordance with God's particular mercy. So that's the source of our hope. But look at the instrument of our hope, too. This is glorious. Verse 3, once again. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Through, just like according to did, through means the same thing that in or by or, from, or according to meant in verse 2. It expresses instrumentality. It expresses the means by which God accomplished this new birth and this granting of living hope to us. But I think, I, I think that we have to ask ourselves, which clause is this phrase actually modifying? So when Peter says, I'm, we're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, is he saying that Christ's resurrection is the means of granting us living hope? Or is he saying that Christ's resurrection from the dead is the means by which we are born again? Because even though those two things are related, they're, they're, they're different things. Is, is Peter just saying we have living hope through the resurrection, which is a, just a change in our perception? Or is Peter saying that the resurrection is actually the means by which God takes us and raises us from the dead? It changes your interpretation of this passage, depending on which option you take there. But here's the thing. I don't think you have to choose one. I think the answer is both. And it's a glorious both. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. I'm gonna, we're going to see first that it's the instrument of our resurrection. Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1. This is the famous passage where Paul's being accused that this, the freedom of the gospel, the freeness of the gospel that he offers would naturally lead people into licentious living because if you receive a free gospel, why in the world would you live a righteous life? But this is Paul's response. And his, and his response links walking in newness of life, spiritual resurrection, and the resurrection of Jesus, and it unites the two. Chapter 6, starting in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? What is dying to sin? It's living to righteousness. This is new birth. 
Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Newness of life linked with the resurrection of Jesus. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin. Once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Because what? Because you've been united to Christ in his resurrection. That's the glorious gospel truth of the new birth. It's it's God taking you and making you a partaker of Jesus. You're a partaker of the risen Christ himself. God has joined you to him so indissolubly that you now share a resurrected nature with him internally right now and physically on the last day. Our spiritual resurrection in some sense is the beginning of our glorification. That's what all sanctification is. It's being conformed into the likeness of Jesus. By what? By his gospel work. When Jesus died, you died with him. When he was raised, you were raised with him. And then the Spirit of God sovereignly took the merit of his death and resurrection and applied it in your life, showing mercy to sinners. And that's also, by the way, the connection between, once again, the comparison between verses 1 and 2 and verses 3 through 5. But verses 1 and 2 say, by the sanctification of the Spirit. Verse 3 says, through or by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What's the connection there? Is that a contradiction? No. It's the harmony of of every single person of the Trinity in our salvation. What Jesus Christ accomplished in his resurrection is taken by the Spirit of God and applied to every single person whom he died for. That should give us immense confidence in the gospel. I don't know about you, but knowing that the Spirit of God has sovereignly joined me to Christ, it gives me the the hope that Peter's audience needed here. It gives me the hope that no no matter what I'm seeing around me, all of this will crumble. You know what won't crumble? The fact that I'm joined to Jesus Christ. Moving on then. We move to number four. The fourth foundation, the object of our living hope. Turn with me back to 1 Peter. (coughs) Excuse me. 1 Peter chapter 3, or chapter 1 again, the object of our hope. Even after we've talked about our need for a new birth, a spiritual resurrection, even after we've talked about the source of of our hope, which is the eternal mercy of God and the means by which God accomplished it, we still haven't actually answered what is our living hope. What is this, verse 3, inher- or verse 4, inheritance which is imperishable, 
undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for us. So what is it? Well, look at the contrast between verses 3 and 4. Because they use the same preposition here. Verse 3 says we've been born again to a living hope. Verse 4 fleshes out that living hope a little bit more to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. So what are they? They're the same thing. Our living hope is our inheritance, which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. The preposition is repeated by Peter for identification. He's identifying our living hope with our future inheritance. But I think we have to ask ourselves a question. There's an adjective on there, living. Why does he call it a living hope? He calls it a living hope because it is a hope that bears the image of its object. In other words, even our inheritance and our living hope is centered on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So not only is the resurrection of Jesus Christ the means by which we are granted living hope, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the living hope as well. We have an inheritance that is centered on resurrection glory. This living hope is produced by our being raised with Christ, and its chief object is the risen, glorified Christ himself. Paul speaks, speaks in a very similar way, with similar categories in mind in Romans chapter 8. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. I know we're flipping around a lot, but I'm trying to... We have to pour the whole Bible through each text to actually get at what the author's meaning. Romans chapter 8 is that famous passage that starts off with there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But then he goes on to start talking about new creation. New birth is part of that. The future resurrection is part of that. The redeemed cosmos is part of that. But look how he frames this discussion in chapter 8, verse 17 starting, or verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Think inheritance. We are inheriting something. If children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. All of creation, which is our co-inheritance with Christ, is looking forward to this resurrection glory according to Paul. All of it will be freed from the curse by the resurrection of Jesus. We are the first fruits of that as the gospel is preached and we are brought from death to life. And Paul actually says that. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth till now and not only the creation but we ourselves who have what? The first fruits of the Spirit. 
First fruits of the Spirit for what? Spiritual resurrection. The beginning of the new creation. The beginning of our inheritance in accordance with the resurrection of Jesus. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly await the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. He's, he's, even, talking, he's even using the same words that Peter is using here. In this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Paul and Peter are talking about the same reality. Resurrection glory, an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us, which is our living hope that we are waiting for when Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven. So not only is the resurrection of Jesus Christ the means by which we come into this kingdom, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is also the great object of our living hope. The risen Christ himself will be our glory and our joy forever. And how this ought to kill all of our feelings of despair as well. Our despair really reveals that we've set our hopes on the things around us that will pass away. When I despair, you know what it reveals? It reveals that I've loved these things around me that will crumble. It reveals that I've loved all of these things which will pass away with a roar with the heavens. And that my ultimate treasure has not been set upon Christ and upon the new creation that he's bringing, that, that I will inherit with him somehow some marvelous mystery of the gospel. We inherit all things eternal glory with Christ. Jesus is bringing us everything. Do you understand that? Jesus is bringing you everything, but we're disappointed with what? Car problems? We have to lift our eyes it reveals idolatry when we're overly disappointed about the things in this life. I'm not saying we don't live in the real world and we don't experience the truth of Ecclesiastes, that we, we know all of this is vanity, but we're not hopeless. <clears throat> and not only that, as if that weren't already enough, turn with me to Psalm chapter 16. I'll close with this. We'll get to our... We'll have to continue this next time. We're not through all these foundations yet. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 16. Sorry, my fingers don't work right now. Psalm chapter 16. David uses the word inheritance too. But even more than resurrection glory, even more than the new creation, the redeemed cosmos, and all of creation teeming with the glory of God, what is the psalmist's hope for his inheritance? Look at verses 5 and 6. The Lord, Yahweh, is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Let's keep reading in verse 7. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night my heart also instructs me. I've set the Lord, Yahweh himself, always before me because he's at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is what? Glad. 
and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. So he is talking about resurrection glory. But what is the object of our eternal hope and our inheritance? You make known to me the path of life in your presence. In your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That is our eternal inheritance. More than the new creation, more than the resurrection, more than no more sickness or pain or disease or worry, we inherit the living God. And we will experience his glory for all eternity, ever increasing in joy and satisfaction and pleasure, shining in the face of Jesus Christ. That's your great hope. You will see the living God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we do have a great and a sure hope. It's not a wish thrown into the wind, but it is a concrete truth that we have because of the resurrection and ascension of your Son. Thank you for what a treasure we have in Christ. I pray that our hearts would grow in affection for him and we'd be obedient to him this week as we leave this place. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you want to stand with me, and we're going to sing one more hymn. Hymns of Grace, number 112, Complete in Thee.
Amen. You are dismissed.